0: Hi, this is Tom Miller, Editor of Solar Review, and welcome to the Solar Review Podcast. Today, we've got a panel from SPI 2018, moderated by our very own CEO, Boaz Seufer. The title of this discussion is The Key Pillars of Running a Healthy Solar Business, and Boaz and panel members go through some key metrics and strategies for creating and maintaining a healthy business in the context of our increasingly complex solar market. So let's get right to the panel, but a quick reminder to please leave a podcast review for us on iTunes, and check out all of our articles, videos, and podcasts at the Solar Review website. Just Google BayWa and distribution, that's B-A-Y-W-A and distribution, and you'll find us. Thanks, and enjoy this discussion from SPI 2018.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Hey. I hope everyone's having a great SPI. I know you're probably a little tired now and maybe excited for the happy hours that are coming up, including at Baywa's booth right after this. So come on by. Um, The name of this panel is uh, Key Pillars of Running a Healthy Solar Business. And what we're hoping to find today is some new ways of looking at what a healthy solar business is. Specifically, we're concerned with solar contracting businesses. And uh, we have some diverse uh, panelists here that have some unique perspectives on um, what a healthy solar business might be and how they achieve it or relate to it in their own work. Um, so I'd like to start by um, first introducing myself, and then I'd have each of you introduce yourselves too. We're going slide-free today um, instead of torturing you with PowerPoint. So. Um, Hopefully, we can have a good discussion. If you have any questions while we're uh, going, um, raise your hand. Um, We'll also have a Q&A at the end. I assume we'll have time. Uh, My name is Boaz Soifer, and I'm responsible for BayWa RE's solar distribution business in the Americas. So we supply solar equipment to solar contractors. And in the course of that, I and we as an organization talk to a lot of solar contractors and see a lot of different um, strategies and cultures and models uh, at play. So um, this is a a uniquely close topic to my heart. Um, Part of what we try to do at BayWa RE is help the solar industry be as healthy as it can be. So healthy solar contracting companies is a key component of that. Jan? Jan?
2: Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Is that working? Yeah. So I'm Jan Rippengale. I'm the CEO of Blue Banyan Solutions. And we are a, a software company that provides business management software for solar installers. Um, Boaz asked us to say something interesting about ourselves.
1: Yeah, that would be great.
2: And so I was going to talk about how I've noticed, walking around SPI and listening to the different conversations that are occurring, that there's a similar shift happening in the industry. I was um, the director of application development when Priceline.com launched. And we had a similar moment where people didn't know if the, the big airlines could possibly tolerate customers setting the prices. And the completely different change where it was a customer-centric, price-driven model. And I am beginning to see and notice there's a lot of similar conversations occurring here um, and a lot of skepticism about whether or not we'll ever get there. And it's an interesting moment that's shifting, I think, how installers are going to approach business and how consumers are going to be approaching how solar interacts in the coming time period. An interesting stat that came up from that was when we launched Priceline.com, a little known fact, there were only two airlines involved. But after the first four weeks, we had five. So it made a big shift in a very short period of time. So momentum can make a difference.
3: So I just thought I'd share. Thank you, Jan. Good afternoon. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Well, thanks for coming here. I know it's uh, more lucrative stuff out there with the beer flowing, and Bo's gouging his own panel discussion with free beer at the BayWaft. <laughs> but thank you for being here. appreciate that. Uh, my name is Atul Raj, and uh, I am with We3 Electric. We3 Electric is uh, we sell and install residential rooftop solar, uh, primarily in California markets. And we have been business for about five years. And prior to that, I worked for other solar companies in in similar capacity. Something interesting about me, or uh, I had no idea what solar was five years ago. (laughs) Honest to God, I thought, well, once you put solar, you don't need utility. It will work in the night as well, right? But I learned, and and I think, you know, that's the key. (laughs) That's the key. Knowledge is going to open... New windows for everybody, and you never stop learning. You know, so I learned that at age forty, that solar only works during the daytime. I mean, you knew that, but you never thought about it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh,
4: my name is Colin Walsh, the CEO of Wave Solar. We uh, work with residential contractors all over the country, hundreds of them, to help with customer acquisition. We own websites like SolarPowerRocks.com. And then also build sales software that contractors use to make their process more efficient, with uh, screening and setting appointments on leads. Um, so something interesting about me, I guess, I have sailed across both the Atlantic and the Pacific. So, hence Wave Solar. <laughs> so, wow! I didn't know uh, that. And hopefully, with solar, I think I think I, I think of industry is a lot like like a wave, and. You know, if those of you who are interested in branding books, Marty Newmeyer is a great author that writes about branding, and he talks a lot about uh, the waves in various industries. And I think we very much are in a, a wave in this
1: industry. I think the the very early part of a wave. Thank you, Colin. Um, oh, and thank you, Misty, for getting the title slide up. Awesome. <laughs> so um, I'd like to start by asking each of you what. Your kind of key components are for defining a healthy solar contracting business. Um, I I don't want you to feel like you have to have like the ultimate definition, but some some of the top ideas that come up for you around healthy contracting. Jan, can we start with you?
2: Sure. So I view healthy contracting as having a three-legged stool. It's pretty basic, but you need to have your sales pipeline. You need to have your product delivery, meaning the installations, and you have to be profitable. And just because you have a large pipeline and a lot of installations does not mean that you're going to be profitable. So, having real time insight so that you can actually know whether or not you're doing profitable work before you execute is a key element of being able to run a a successful business. That is, you know. My sales,
1: product, and profit, or
2: pipeline, product, and profitability.
1: All right, awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Atul.
3: Well, let's stick to the, the triangle strategy, the three-prong strategy. I would say it's still applicable. You know, Jack Jack Welch, the the legendary CEO of uh, GE, said that once. Customer experience, employee experience, and cash flow. I think those are the three critical hallmarks of any successful business. You have happy customers, happy employees, and you make money. That's a sign of a healthy business.
4: So I'm going to focus my answer on kind of the section that I'm most familiar with, so customer acquisition costs. And I think that there are many strategies you can use to get customers in your business that are not sustainable but might show you very low short-term costs. Often they can come. along with a ding on your reputation of your company, especially if they're overly aggressive outbound tactics. So I think a healthy solar business needs to be using sustainable sales tactics that are cost effective, but not necessarily the most uh, inexpensive way to get customers.
1: Great. Thank you, Colin. Um, a tool I want to build on your answer a little bit, um, because you mentioned employee experience as part of um, the, the 3 pronged strategy. And uh, my next question was going to be about culture. So um, if you could speak a little more about what are some of the elements that you have found are essential to a healthy culture and to the employee experience that you're referring to.
3: Sure. You know, we, <clears throat> we, we think culture is something that, I think it's a big driver of any organization. You can bring a lot of people from diverse experience, background, culture, to bring it all together and sell a product that's going to make money and that's going to drive the industry. Culture is a big driver in in that organization. There's a couple of key elements of culture that we try to drive very hard. One is knowledge. People need to be self Promoting their knowledge. They need to be always learning. I learned at age 40 about solar business. They didn't know anything about solar business before that. So, anybody out there, they can learn anything they want to learn if they want to learn it. But the key is to find those employees who are willing to learn. Second part is discipline be able to be tenacious, work hard, and be disciplined to deliver the expectation. A lot of people have passion to work hard, but they don't have direction. You give them right direction, you give them right environment, they can deliver for you. The third thing is empowerment. We believe in empowering all our employees, even the front line. They can make decisions. You can create a sandbox for them to play within. Obviously, you don't want complete Wild Wild West in decision making, but you want to create a sandbox where your average employee can make certain decisions. And as long as you train them right, you give them the right cultural values, they'll make the, make the, they'll make the right decisions most of the time. And, and back them up. If they make a decision, you back them up. So next time, they will improve upon that, and, that and they'll make a better decision.
1: Great. Thank you, Atul. Colin, I saw you nodding. Did you have um, some thoughts about Atul's response?
4: Um, I think empowerment especially is very important when it comes to how your external customers will interact with especially the frontline people in your company. Often the people, for instance, that are calling leads for the first time that might come into your solar business are some of the lowest paid people in your organization. But if, if you're thinking about how your company is perceived in market, making sure that those people are empowered and educated to make good decisions and remembering that they're the front line of your company and how you might, they might be the only touch point that some customers have with your brand.
1: And that could frame how they think about your company from there on forward. Great. Thank you. Um, I'd love to hear an example or two of how you empower people on the front line, at all.
3: In the big part of of, uh, running a healthy solar contracting business is what rates you sell at. So we, we empower our proposal desk to make those decisions, okay. what rates will sell in, in, across the market. Uh-huh. So, so they're empowered to adjust the rates based on what they see, what the production is, what the customer needs are. Doesn't need my in- approval or somebody else's approval. They can adjust the rates based on what they see is right.
1: Yeah. Good, we're going to talk about KPIs a little later, which I know ties into that. Um, Jan, what have you seen as elements of healthy culture in contracting businesses?
2: So ironically, I think some of the healthiest businesses have healthy levels of tension and transparency. So for, for us, in, and it's true, I think, in any technology company, and solar companies are technology companies, where you have rapidly changing products and you need to keep up to date with the education that tool is mentioning. And when that happens, people are going to think that they know the answer, and even be quite confident that they know the answer, and then be shown that they're wrong. They will have made a mistake. And they need to be free to and expected to say that they're wrong immediately and to everyone. And um, in our organization, this does create some tension. But it's very healthy tension. It's tension that enables people to do their best to make sure they're right, to show the right based on facts, not based on maybe how loudly they can speak. And and other elements that really lead to making fact-based decisions as often as possible and having rapid feedback about if something is wrong, being able to pivot effectively and, and choose a different course. So transparency especially when you're making mistakes and you've got a lot going on. And the other element that comes in with this tension is that eventually everyone's going to make a mistake. And so the people who are admitting they're wrong ought to include the CEO, right? No. <laughs> and, and if it does and it's safe, like nobody actually loses their job because they made a mistake, then you, you get this much more rapid iteration and higher quality. And, and it can actually become a fun place to work That in, in a way because you're not suppressing. You're not worried about where you're, whether or not you have to be perfect all the time. So I actually think transparency and the tension that comes from that transparency is a big sign of, of a healthy culture.
1: Thank you. Those were um, all uh, stimulating ideas. That I want to talk more about. Um, so, uh, yeah, let me let me turn Jan's comments actually back to Colin and Atul. Um, and, and do you see uh, in in your own businesses do you do you also cultivate transparency intention? Is that something you guys work on? And is there anything in particular that that you do in those areas that other folks here might want to emulate?
4: Yeah, I think a really good message you can give to folks that you manage is it's totally okay to make a mistake, but you can't keep it secret. You need to to tell us and it's you're not going to be penalized for it. Because there are many, many company cultures where people do like to place blame and, and point fingers. So uh, that kind of goes back to transparency as well, you know, being open and sharing about your mistakes and how you can learn from them. I, I used to run the marketing at Mosaic before starting Wave Solar. And I think they have a, a great culture of transparency that extends all the way up through the management levels. And those of you that may have interacted with the organization can, can maybe sense that it's, it's a very unique way to run a business, to be fully transparent. And employees do feel a lot more ownership of uh, their place in the company with that.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Atul?
3: Absolutely. I, you know When you talk about a healthy business, Every employee needs to be part of that. It can't just be one division or one group or one segment of of your employees. If you don't have shared vision on your goals, on your cost, on your revenue, on your process, and if you're not taking feedback or input from your population, you're not going to be healthy. It's, It's very simple. It needs to be a shared vision that this is, as a business, this is our goal, we are going to make profit in six months, and here's the way to get there. And unless everybody shares that vision and believes in that, you cannot do that. So I think transparency is key to making sure everyone is on the same page. Everybody, everyone has that shared vision.
1: What is the toughest feedback each of you got from an employee as CEO? Jan? They, they, I mean, in the, in the interest of transparency, we're just going to air this out in front of everybody. No, that you're willing to share that you learned from?
2: So some of the toughest feedback I have gotten is that I should never use the word, it's just this, or you only do that. Okay. So I have a larger perspective on the different issues that are going on. And so often I can see a clear path to execute the vision that would require some to substantially less energy than is being expended by the employees. And the style of saying, oh, you just do, utterly shuts them down. And it needs to be much more question-based and much more, did you notice that, that this resource exists for you? Did you notice that there's a factor here that you can include in your thinking, or here's an element to make that smoother? so that they begin to, to see from my point of view what it is that they missed. Because they're looking at their blind spots or they've got a vision of what it is that they need to do. And they usually lock, lock in. And they just aren't seeing these other resources. So often just, did you notice these things around you is, is, an, is an effective at redirecting them to look at it from a bigger picture in the future? And it was pretty painful to get that feedback uh-huh. originally.
1: Yeah. And you've integrated it, sounds like.
2: I, I have tried. Yeah. I, have, I have not gotten that particular feedback for about eight weeks. Uh- <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: progress.
3: Yeah. Atul, any, any tough feedback that you've been able to? I'm sure all of us have got that tough feedback. Um, I think the toughest one for me, and it hasn't been recent, is what, is what a while back was, you guys only care about numbers. And as a leader, it's, uh, yes, numbers are important, right? That's what we're here for, right? We're here to make money. We're not here to do charity. And, and people need to understand that there's a balancing act. As a leader, you're always trying to balance those three things I talked about, the customer experience, the employee experience, and the cash flow. And sometimes they can work all in tandem, sometimes they don't, and you have to make that priority depending upon the situation so yeah you you, you just that's a tough yeah. one to the people think that we're only driving numbers while ignoring other important things
1: yeah, that's a good one thank you
4: um, Tough as feedback. I need to be paid more no <laughs> uh, I would say. Looking over people's shoulder a little bit too much, and especially with more junior employees, uh, really trying to empower them to, to take their own initiatives and trust that they're going to execute in their position. So focusing, I, I've gotten feedback a few times regarding uh, focusing more on training rather than day-to-day operations and tasks that are being performed. So.
1: Yeah, good. Thank you. We're going to touch back on that topic in a little while here. So these guys are being really vulnerable up here, just saying. Like, these are tough questions. <laughs> I, I hadn't planned that one, but yeah, I think we should do an interim round of applause here. Thank you for sharing those.
3: And he totally did not set us up. He did he, not tell us about these I questions. I didn't wa- warn him
1: about that one. <laughs> um, so I want to switch gears and, and talk about strategy a little bit now, right? Starting at, at the top with culture, now let's bring it down a level. Um, And Colin, I'd like to start with you and you've done a few different things in solar and you interact with a lot of solar companies. Um, Are there ways in which you've seen companies um, align their strategy with being a healthy business in interesting ways or um, uh, ways that you've seen uh, companies differentiate with their strategy?
4: Yeah, so speaking of customer acquisition in particular, so I think there's a fundamental shift in how consumers are now shopping for solar and eventually businesses as well. So I think that solar companies that have really trained their employees and focused a lot on becoming very good with processing customers off the Internet are going to be more sustainable businesses in the long term. And that does take a specific type of training for the employees, certain focus on software, and certain company culture to enforce basically that 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 progression. And it doesn't come naturally, I know, to a lot of the contractors that we deal with, especially if you're, you're uh, coming from a background where you received a lot of business from referral. But more and more customers now are being comfortable coming in off the web. So I, I think that's, that's something that us as an industry are going to have to become more comfortable with. And that means, generally speaking, becoming more comfortable with uh, driving your business off of software metrics and really looking to software to solve some of the challenges in your, your day-to-day operations.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, Atul, can we flip that one to you?
3: I think the question was more about how shifting strategies are driving the industry or driving our can business. Be. Sure. This is, this is a fast-moving industry, and, and I think you have to stay abreast with what's happening, whether it's financing, whether it's regulatory, or just customer. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And to stay ahead, you have to be educated uh, with, the, with what's happening. You know, we, we look at, you know since we are a solar contractor, we sell, install, Sometimes we hand off to a finance partner, sometimes not. Sometimes the customer owns it himself, themselves. You have to understand the shifting marketplace in the finance. Let's just, I'll just address the finance part of the The market can go in waves through a PPA business, or a purchase business, or a cash business, or whatnot. And if you're not aware of what, what's going on in the market, you can fall behind. California, especially, has seen in the last four or five years multiple spikes of PPA business, then they go down. Then the purchase options come up, then they go down. And the PPA. So you just have to be very nimble in adjusting. And the key is that it goes back to knowledge. Do your reps know how to sell different products? Does your operation know how to execute on different products? So I think you have to be very nimble in how do you adjust
1: so, so, nimbleness as a strategic objective, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, Jan, what comes up for you around strategy and business health?
2: So, I certainly agree and we develop, you know, software to enable the, the rapid response to threats mm-hmm. and opportunities. And what I have found most helpful with strategy is, is the concept of a blue ocean. That you pretty much want to go someplace where there aren't other boats. That you're, instead of, that is just open and blue ocean space that you can embrace. And that often requires very creative kind of pivot in what it is that you're thinking. There are many, you know, more millennial style businesses that, you know, embrace your quirkiness about whatever it is that you are authentically passionate about. And it could be, fixing apartment buildings so that they've got EV and you've got a message about you know saving the planet for your kid or whatever it is but embracing having a strategy where you're going to go where there aren't very many other people yet and looking for where that is and looking to know what it is about you that is your superpower that you do differently than anybody else and and embracing that and letting that be out there is actually very challenging and incredibly effective and compelling when we have a direct-to-consumer relationship, and they want to know who you are and what it is that you care about. And so on the strategy side, embrace your quirkiness. All right.
1: I like it. Now I'm going to ask everybody the quirkiest thing now. Colin, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your comments on customer acquisition and how strategies in customer acquisition are changing. Can you say a little more about that? Um,
4: I would focus you know, in kind of your day-to-day businesses on, on how you can develop a real proficiency around uh, processing leads that come from the internet and how that might differ from how you get customers today. So we have, we have a lot of companies that rely quite a bit on outbound sales tactics. Meaning outbound calling, canvassing, uh, flyers, mailers—things that are are basically interruption-based marketing, putting something in front of the consumer and hoping that you can you can get them hooked to come into your business. And I I think consumers kind of fundamentally, and if you measure this using like Net Promoter Score, for instance, you'll you'll find that consumers fundamentally prefer to search for and educate themselves and get to the purchasing decision on their own power and. That can sometimes be a longer sales cycle. For many consumers, the, the solar purchasing decision for residential might be a six-, 12-month-long process where they, they might request quotes from more than one company. They might do a lot of research on their own. They might need to ask their spouse. They might need to ask their neighbor. And if you're the company that can support them through that process and be just a useful source of information, sending an occasional email once a month that gives them the latest updates on the market that reinforces why your company is different in your market area and that can be family owned that might be a number of installations you've done locally it might be some unique set of knowledge that you have about your market that you can share then you're going to be top of mind when they're ready to make that decision and you know i'd like to see it as an industry i think we could we could do a better job with putting out consistent educational rather than promotional content. So stuff that's educational on policy, educational on market trends. That's stuff that many of your consumers or potential businesses would be very interested to hear. And you have
1: a very unique and valuable perspective on that. Great. Thank you. That's helpful. Um, And Atul, when I interact with you in your office, I experience your. your, your company is very clear-minded about what it's trying to achieve. Um, and I, I hear that nimbleness is an underpinning of that. Can you say more about how you achieve that or how you um, create the shared vision that you referred to earlier around the strategy?
3: I think one of, the, uh, one of the key elements, at least in our business, is being clear-minded as to what you want to do. There's so many things out there and it's so difficult to be expert at everything. And, and I've seen a lot of companies, organizations, try a lot of things and not be successful. There, you know, even a big company like Boeing, it's a big company, right? They have competency of doing a very few things very well. right? They can't start making make electric cars tomorrow. They, they have money. They have wherewithal. They want to do it, they can do it to develop a competency of something it takes repeated action takes practice it needs that clear minded vision mm-hmm. and i think we try doing that by 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 selecting the geography we want to work in selecting the customer segment we want to work in the product we want to sell and controlling that customer experience from from beginning to end making sure we deliver what we promise i think that's that's the shared vision with everybody at my company, that everybody knows what we're going to sell, everybody knows where we're going to sell, and, and what the delivery will be. If we try to do too much, I know we'll fail.
1: Yeah. It sounds simple, but it's really difficult.
3: Well, it's difficult to control the egos, Yeah. right? You have, I have people coming, hey, can you go sell in Nevada? Can I? Yes, of course I can, but don't want to. Right? It will be outside my competency. Can we go sell you know, commercial product tomorrow? Of course we can. But we're not good at it. We don't have competency. We can develop that over time. So it will require certain assets, certain resources to go do that. So can is one thing, and want to do it is, t- is totally different. Right? So you.
1: I really love the comment. I don't know if you just invented that on the spot, that competency requires repeated action. Um, and, and so there are only so many things you can repeat. Like, I think there's a, a Buddha saying about we, the reason we focus on our breathing is because it's the only thing that we're going to do that many times in a lifetime. So we have an opportunity to really get great at it, right? Yeah. Great comments. Thank you. Um, OK, so, so I want to get into how a little bit, right? We've talked more about the, the what. Um, and in the area of, of how, I'm thinking of what processes do we have that reinforce culture, strategy, and health with our people? And what do we measure to know if it's working? So um, Jan, I know that you're uh, very people-processes oriented. And I thought I'd start with you for this question. Um, can you share some best practices for how you create alignment and, and work on culture and strategy?
2: Yes. Um, so one of the key elements for introducing process is that if you have to go someplace else in order to set up your process or to fix or tweak your process, it isn't going to happen. So you need to put process tweaks and fixes right in line with what it is that they're doing in their daily job. An example of this would be you know, project templates. If you know exactly which kind of projects that you're running and you have a certain template that you're, you're running it by and you get a new form that's updated from the utility that you now need to sign. You need to put that right into the process that's going to get used the very next time somebody comes in to utilize it. If it is one step removed and they have to go someplace else or or they have to look on their hard drive instead of getting it, it just needs to be right there in front of them from the beginning. Because otherwise, those little tweaks, they just get lost and the compound effect is a a tremendous multiplier of continuous improvement. So lots and lots of little improvements, just like the penny doubled every day, gives you $10 million at the end of 30 days. These process improvements, one by one, if you can capture them and then make sure that the very next time somebody does that process, they're, they're using the updated model, then you, you have made a difference and you will reap the benefits. Otherwise, you just kind of like leak brain power all over the place, <laughs> and it's really Gross. hard. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my main insight about processes: get it and get it right there,
1: and and fit it into the day to day of what people are doing. Don't make process a side project.
2: E- exactly, so that yeah. that they always come to the place that's got the latest version of the best process.
1: Yeah. Colin, I want to bounce that over to you since you are also um, a software guy, um, as, as Jan is, gal. Um, yeah, how, how do you think about process from, a, from a, how it works out there in the world versus what you're developing?
4: So I, I'd like to know what sort of could be improved first. So how, how many in the, the room know about net promote, how to calculate your company's Net Promoter Score? So this is something that's like, so a few, five, five or six. So in Silicon Valley, it's definitely like very widely used to measure not just how your customers feel about you, but you could also use it to measure how your employees feel about the company. What it is, in essence, is you're measuring off one simple question, would you recommend company X to friend or family member, and how likely would you be to recommend them? on a scale from 1 to 10. And basically, 1 through 6 are considered detractors. So uh, then you have 7, 8 are uh, passive, 9 or 10 are promoters. There are people that would definitely promote you and recommend you. And it, it's essentially uh, subtracting. You want to see what your, your promoters minus your detractors are. And so a score of, say, 20 or 30 is actually exceptional for a company. And you know, for you to reach 100, which is very rare, you would have to have 100% promoters. And you, you can kind of carry this inside your company by looking at how your employees actually rate you. And if you have a company culture where mistakes are okay and you've told employees that there's no way they'll be penalized, in fact, you want their potentially negative feedback about your company... Something like a survey and having questions go out to your employee, like how likely would you be to recommend the company to a colleague, and getting really deep into more granular parts of your company and having them actually score different parts of your company can kind of tell you how your process might need to uh, adapt if you're looking to change or improve your company culture. So I really like, we did this at, at Mosaic. We had a net promoter score for... Our partners and for the employees, and the employee net promoter score is actually taken very seriously. It would it would drive improvements and and change kind of
1: our quarterly targets
4: for how we can improve the company culture.
1: That's great, um, Jody. We should do that. <laughs> um, and Atul, tell me about processes in V three Electric.
3: So. The two things I always try to t- tell all the, anybody who t- wants to talk about operations. A good operation can be scalable. You should be able to scale. You know, if you're doing 100 installs today, is your operation set up in such a way that if you do 200, it will still be successful. It won't fail. Second, it needs to be measured. If an operations cannot be measured, or steps of the operation cannot be measured, it's not a good operation. And why do I say that? You have to be able to measure what you do. And if you can't, then it becomes like a qualitative, feel-good kind of thing, right? A good operation is always going to be something quantitative that can be measured. And it could be 100 elements of the operation, could be five, could be one. Like Colin just talked about NPS. Maybe you just want to measure NPS. Maybe that's will be the essence of your business that you want to target all your operations towards driving an NPS. Or you might want to measure your cost. Or you might want to measure revenue, that this is my driving for the business. I just want to measure everything that, every process that drives revenue. So you know, we, we have three big goals. We only have three. For the whole company, there's only three goals. A revenue goal, a volume goal, and a cost goal. And then you can break that into 100 other goals for every employee that manages that particular part of the process or the operation. And then they're tied to that big goal. And you measure that. You, you measure the employee. You measure the company against those, those scorecards. And you give active feedback to every employee. This is what you were supposed to do. This is what you did. And uh, this is how you create shared vision that everybody has the same goal. And, and, and again, depending upon the, compli- the complexity of your business. You could have 100 things on your scorecard, or you could have one thing. Right? It depends on what you want to focus on. Or it can change, too. Like, like some months, we will do only quality as our quality month. That whole month, all my operation is only focused on driving quality. Some months, we might just drive cycle times. That this month, we're going to focus only on improving cycle times, and every process that drives that needs to achieve this success, 20%, 30%, whatever that number is. So you create focus. You create specific scorecards. And like I said, if you can't measure an operation, it's not a good, good operation in my mind.
1: You're going to do
2: that? You want me nope. to? Go yeah, I, I forgot to mention my favorite metric. Mine is milestone duration. Like, how long does it take to get between milestones? And, and it's a very effective way of doing systems thinking. When you set up a system, you, want to, you know that you have certain places where it's static and you're waiting for somebody else to respond, like you submitted everything to the financier and you're waiting for them to pay you. So or you completed the installation, there's no more activity you can do to move on to the next step. And so when you set up these static points in your system properly, all of the dynamic points, everything where you can take action to make it move faster are opportunities for you to make those handoffs work more quickly, to make them work more effectively. And so milestone duration, if it takes too long, the milestone duration should really be your vendor's service level agreement. And it shouldn't be based on you. You should be able to get your work done as quickly as you can. And so that the differentiation between the two is is something that I find really fun to think about, because I like to optimize these things. I'm such a geek. <laughs> anyway, it's okay. That's my favorite we're, in a, we're in a
1: room full of geeks I think I think everybody appreciates it they're tired though they look tired um, a tool you mentioned um, sometimes things are very difficult to measure um, is there something that that it took you a while to get a, an angle on where, where you were trying to measure it and you couldn't figure it out and then you 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 figured a tweak to, to get at the data that was going to be actionable in the way you were looking for?
3: There, there, you know, there are certain elements of our business. Uh, customer interaction, whether it's on the phone or in person.
1: The quality of it.
3: The quality of it, right? Yeah. Uh, how do you measure that? Then there's uh, supply chain. There, there's supply chain accuracy, right? There's, there's certain elements of that, especially on small dollar value, small dollar items. Um, employee satisfaction is always difficult to measure, uh-huh. right? And and to get an employee satisfaction measure, which is relevant to your business, is always impo- is difficult, but very important in my mind. You can ask generic questions, but it has to be relevant to your business uh, and your culture. So, yeah, I think uh, we... When we set up our uh, quality scorecard, which kind of measures our whole business, we, we struggled with uh, some of the cycle times, the milestones that uh, Jen was talking about. How fast is good enough to deliver this? Like, you know, For example, we want to give a customer a site survey. What's a good number? Is it 90% within 24 hours? Is it 60%? Within, what's a good number that you should achieve as a benchmark for quality? So some of that, you know, just kind of trial and error. You, you, then you have some data, and then you can see your attrition, how long you wait, how much customers you lose. But, but initially, you just got to do some trial and error and some industry experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think the, the message there is that getting the right data can be an iterative process, where sometimes you just have to start measuring something so you can get a handle on what, what you're really trying to measure. Yeah. Awesome. Um, And Jan mentioned her favorite metric. Do you guys have any favorite metrics? For
4: uh, net promoter score. Yes. For what? Net promoter score. Net promoter
3: (laughs) score. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that. My my favorite metric, surprisingly, is employee attrition. Uh huh.
2: Is it employee attrition after 90 days? Do you have any qualifiers on that?
3: No. Nope. Because we, we take a lot of time when we recruit somebody. Mm. So if, if we lose anybody, we feel that we made a mistake somewhere.
1: You know, somebody said to me yesterday, if you don't have employee turnover in your sales team, you're doing it wrong. Because you, sh- you should always be churning through low performers. And a- 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 how does that fit with your um, attrition metric? What-
3: so there's a good attrition and there's a bad attrition. Yeah. Right. So the, we do have cert, certain goals for attrition in sales program and operations program. And those are purely driven on performance. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking mostly about people leaving us because they feel like we're not a good fit for them or we're not giving them the right opportunity. Yeah. So that's, that's, we, I think that I, I feel, I feel the worst. Somebody leaves us because they think there's better opportunity somewhere else.
1: Yeah. Great. And, and um, Jan and Colin, I know you both interact with a variety of solar contractors. Are there any metrics you've seen out there that um, uh, were unusual or, or, and, and were kind of key to how contractors ran their businesses?
4: Um, on the customer acquisition side, considering your, your staff time in processing leads in addition to dividing the marketing costs by number of deals closed.
1: What's a good staff time per opportunity?
4: So, I mean, you want to, it depends on how you compensate your employees, of course, but, um, you know, I, I would hope that your are all in. Customer acquisition costs should be falling between about 5 to 8% of total retail system costs in California. If you're kind of trending above that, then there's probably some room for optimization. If you're below that, then you're probably using some Overly aggressive sales tactics that could put a ding in your reputation, like you know, buying preset appointments from someone that's running like an offshore call center to generate them and maybe violating TCPA, for instance. Or really aggressive canvassing.
1: Yeah. And and if you're above eight percent, chances are you have too much staff time per opportunity?
4: Yeah, or or there's room for optimization. You know, it depends on your model and Uh, what cost per watt you sell at, and what equipment you're selling as well. So all of those things will will change the variables a bit. But yeah, I'd say, generally speaking, if you're above 8%, 10%, there's there's room for optimization in in most solar markets.
1: Mm -hmm. And Jan, have you seen any curious metrics with your customers?
2: I've seen many curious metrics.
1: Any good curious metrics?
2: Yeah, you wouldn't want to replicate the vast majority of them.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, there is one that, <laughs> that that's, so there are many creative ideas have gone out, out, out or out there. Um, one that I was hearing about yesterday had to do with um, you know giving referral bonuses for customers who give you referrals that actually close, and then just seeing. Who are your, your best-paid customers? I thought was actually a clever metric.
1: <laughs> Not just bonusing them, but seeing who your best performers in your the Your best-performing
2: customers are, yeah. right. Yeah. So if they've got multiple referrals that close.
3: And operationally, kind of cool. any, any thoughts? Did... Well, I think you told me the best metric when you came and visited me once that you look at the credit scores and who pays the fastest?
1: If we do, yes.
3: <laughs>
1: That's important. Uh,
3: you know, there, there's so many things to look at from a metrics perspective. Um, if you think about customers, the, uh, you know, we, we measure customers in multiple ways, right? Their, their credit, their response time, their communication. Um, I don't think there's a metric out there that I would pinpoint that this is the most important from customer perspective. Uh, obviously, we want customers who are engaged, who want to know. I mean, I tell our reps, sales reps that you are educator first and salesman later. Because you're in a new industry, you're still educating people. And if you can educate somebody about our product, then I think you have won the battle. Because at that point, customer is going to make a decision. right? And as long as they go solar, I'm happy. They may not go with you or me, but they'll go solar. It's good for the industry. So they're educators. So I think think that's critical to find customers who are responsive and and, and stay engaged.
5: I
4: I like the system that uh, Google and Intel use called, probably many other companies do, called OKRs. Um, You know, it's essentially like a shared uh, set of metrics that across your organization you're using to drive your business activity for that quarter or or annualize as well, and I think you know there's a kind of natural thing that happens when you're managing to to put your key metrics for the business kind of in a silo and you have your dashboard and you're you're looking at it just with your uh, key people in the organization and not sharing that with all all levels of the organization and the OKR system essentially shares the metrics that are important to your business, keeping them very simple so that the people that are on the very front lines, even if their job is to call and set appointments on leads, they're aware of the metrics that are driven by all aspects of the organization. So maybe you have like a cumulative sales goal. Maybe you have a target for customer acquisition costs. Maybe uh, you have a, a goal for average time to call. Which you know might involve like marketing and the people that are calling
1: leads. So. OKR. That was.
2: I have a concept. So so when I first go into an organization and we talk about metrics, the only metrics I care about are happy path metrics, which are making sure that you can start and get to the end as quickly as possible if everything goes right. The number of blockers that end up existing on the happy path is actually um, a huge barrier to a lot of business. So first, knowing that you're doing the happy path and then just doing the happy path well is my first tactic. And then I start counting the exceptions. And then based on the volume of how often that exception occurs, then we might spend some time optimizing it. So that's just a method I use to make sure that we're getting the the biggest bang for the buck when we're setting up these systems because there's a lot of overhead. Every bit of data that you collect is overhead. So you need to make sure that it's actually giving you the corresponding return.
1: That ties back to a tool's comment earlier about um, competency being about repeated action, right? So repeating the happy path um, and, and then counting exceptions and building competencies there or reducing exceptions to increase focus it's all coming together it's awesome thank you
3: it's also about creating you know employee experience if you don't have continuity and stability in what you're doing people will keep making mistakes right you have to give them a clear path as to what you want them to do a lot of employees in our business whether they're sales or processing or installers there's a lot of frontline employees who, who rely on us to give them a clear, unambiguous target as to what they need to do. And if there's ambiguity there, then the chances are they'll make mistakes, and they'll keep making mistakes. You know, I I always try to impress upon the team that anybody who works in the office, they work for sales reps and the installers. Those are our first customers. If you can make the sales rep experience seamless, that when, when they are interacting with the customers and they know their product and they know what they're selling, you have done your job as a support team. When the installer goes in the field to install the project, they should know the design. They should know the layout. They should have all the product they need. They should know how to install that. There should be no ambiguity there. If they don't have all that on the roof, guess what's going to happen? Your product's going to be delayed. They'll take shortcuts. They might use products which are not compatible. And you'll have more issues. So it's very critical to create that path in an operation where you have clear visibility as to what you want to achieve. And then you continuously keep doing that until everybody has achieved the perfection.
2: It sounds tedious, what you're talking about. And there is an element that is tedious. And it's exactly where you start to get the leverage benefits. So it's worth persisting.
3: Office people need to set it up. People in the office who are designing, who are engineering, who are procuring material, they need to make sure that the installers are successful. And once that clicks that I'm working for this installer, then they will be able to deliver.
1: And I like how you're connecting that not just to customer experience, but to employee experience. Yeah. Um, one more question for you, and then we'll open it up. Um, uh, people management and performance management. Um, we haven't touched on that a whole lot. We, we've um, only obliquely is there are there any best practices that come to mind uh, either in contracting or in your own businesses, uh, Colin and Jan, a, a tool obviously in a contracting business, um, that help you um, reinforce, health, culture, strategy, all the things that we've talked about, any, like, you know, the, the great quarterly meeting or the, <laughs> or, or, the, or the daily check-in or huddle, or what, what are some best practices that you've seen?
3: To, to, to us, it's a, it's a weekly touch point. Every employee needs to get some sort of weekly touch point from their immediate supervisor. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is there needs to be a weekly touch point. Similarly, for me, it's important for me to have a weekly touch point with anybody who interacts with me directly. So With anybody who what? I'm sorry. Interacts with me directly. So whoever reports to me directly, I want to make sure that they have a weekly touch point with me. And I'm not talking about a group discussion. I'm talking about a one-on-one discussion. I, I commit to give them at least 30 minutes every week to talk about their well-being, our well-being, their goals, their personal goals, how they all match together. And I think that's important for everybody. It's important for me. My boss does the same thing to me. So it's it's important. And I, I feel that the whole performance management has shifted. And I've seen it go from the traditional annual performance appraisals to millennials who want instant performance appraisal. I think it has gone a whole spectrum. In our company, we don't do annual performance appraisals anymore. We do when we feel like it's due. It could be every week. Could be once in six months. And it doesn't need to be everybody either. It whoever needs it. So this is your, your, your touch point. When you're, when you're in touch with the employee every week, then you will know where they are. And you will know, OK, this is a time when I actually need to do a performance appraisal. So we've taken a completely different approach to that. We've kind of gotten away from the traditional annual 3% increases.
2: (laughs) Go
4: ahead. Uh, Similar to that, so I like a a quarterly cadence to uh, bonuses or any sort of compensation that's that's tied to a performance metric, and then a a weekly check-in like that, where, where it is a hard score, so the employee does not have ambiguity around the metric. They understand that they're at you know, 4.7 out of 5 that's achievable and what that will get them in terms of compensation. And then also sharing across different sections of the organization so that uh, people are really, in terms of their compensation as well, fully bought into the metric. So think about metrics that are really important for your company to achieve that quarter and making sure that that is part of folks' bonus. But it's, a, it's kind of an innovative, innovative way to do it if you have an employee that's at a you know, very different salary level, but there are ways that you can think of metrics that are important across the organization that everyone can be tied to.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thank you.
2: So, quirky again. I actually took... We do one-on-ones weekly as well. And I took a page out of my parenting handbook. And so the questions that my employees know that they're gonna get, my direct reports know they're gonna get asked every week are what happened last week? What was the best favorite thing that happened last week? And I learned so much by finding out what excites them and what, what felt like a breakthrough to them. It could be, that the coffee machine finally got replaced, or it could be that somebody that they'd been working on this, you know, f- incredibly frustrating process finally understood what they needed to get and it worked. I mean it's it's all over the map. But asking them what was their favorite thing, what was their high from the last week, and then what was their low? What was the thing that just was discouraging or disappointing or was really tough for them last week? And it's a completely different quality of information that I'm getting, but it's been really informative about learning how to engage them and learning how not to discourage them. And that was how I got some of my tough feedback. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been really helpful. So, high, low as questions. What was your high? What was your low? High,
1: low. Okay. Great. So, Thank you. You guys are doing an amazing job. I want to open it up. Um, I think we have a wealth of knowledge in our panel. And I think anything that you might want to ask about the solar industry in general or healthy businesses or solar software or efficient operations, these guys are a resource for you. Um, Do we have any questions? There's a mic in the middle of the room here. I'll, I'll repeat that in case anybody heard. We're awesome.
6: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what company are you with?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for being here.
2: Do you want to use the mic up here? I actually, I love what you're saying.
1: Too tired. You want to say or the comment, in case anybody didn't hear it, was working on the business instead of working in the business um, being a transition um, that obviously these folks have made successfully. So yeah, it's um, an important one. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to bring up on this topic?
6: Oh, Oh, sorry, I have a question. And I don't think that you've really touched on it so much. Um, I was sitting in a panel earlier and we kind of talked about um, employees and what they're looking for in companies. And especially in solar, I know labor, finding good quality, hard workers who are passionate is always a challenge for a lot of companies. Um, And I think there's a shift, too, in what employees, especially younger employees, are looking for in terms of benefits and culture. And I was just wondering, from your perspectives, uh, what you have heard and how you have adjusted your cultures to fit those changes that maybe from the past of a Monday through Friday 8 to 5 job. Uh, to more of that fluid culture that really works with employee differences that are emerging today. Um, by the way, my name is Melissa from Energy Bin, and thank you for your wonderful panel.
1: Thank you, Melissa. Did you guys understand the question?
3: Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think so. It's a great question. How do you uh, adjust the Millennials into your, into your business, which is a, you know, this business is still a mix of construction and new, new industry. So there's still some old school things that need to be incorporated with the new culture. Uh, I, I think there's, there's two things from, from our perspective. Your recruiting needs to be driven to fulfill your culture. So you need to be selective. And two, you are creating a new industry, literally. right? California is ahead, but rest of the country, you're creating a new industry. So, so let's not be shy about hiring people with no experience and then have believe in yourself that you can train them and you can help them get into this industry. So we have been very successful at that, whether it's sales, whether it's operations. 90% of the time, we hire people with no experience. And then we rely, we rely upon our own processes to train them and develop them.
4: Great answer. Yeah, I think a lot of people that are coming to work in the solar industry you know that it's not an appealing enough mission to. Uh, make money for the founders of the company, or make the CEO more money. You know the the reason why a lot of people are, especially younger people, I think, attracted to the solar industry is is because they believe in the mission of what solar is all about. And uh, making sure that your mission is differentiated and it comes out in your job postings. So you know you can make like a template job posting, or you can really kind of put yourself out there, why you're different, and try to try to insert your company mission into your hiring practices, as well as uh, your recruiting, your touch points on your website, and uh, you know, really differentiate yourself in the market. Your, your touch points and the way that people feel about you is, is your brand, and your touch points extend to your website, your job postings you put out there, your email signatures, you know, the way that first person answers the phone. All of those can frame how someone feels about your company.
2: So we um, look at how you do this in a uh, when, we, when we are interviewing, we're looking for a couple characteristics. We are looking for people who are curious. Um, often we're interested in people who are interested in mastery. And so, and so different jobs have different motivations that you want to use. There's a book called Managing for Happiness, or Management 3.0, and they have a game they call champ frogs. And I can't remember what they all mean, but it starts with Curious, curiosity, honor, something. One of them is mastery. And there are different elements that motivate people. So when you're on a call center, um, you want to be motivated because you're interested in making people happy and understanding how they're feeling. And you've got a different sensibility about interacting with people. But if you're going to be somebody who is and putting out installation schedules and you know, distributing work, you need to be someone who's interested in puzzles and who's interested in making all of the elements of the puzzle fit together. And so finding, thinking about what positions you're looking for and what the people who would s- succeed in those positions, what characteristics and motivations they would have, lead to much more fun interview questions and which is appealing to the millennials, because I feel like, again, you do authentically care about what motivates them, right? Because you're kind of screening that motivation for the position that they're, they're going into. So you're not trying to force a square peg into a round hole. Um, that's-
1: Great input. Thank you. Did that help? Awesome. Any other questions? Please.
5: Yes, hi, my name is Daniel, I'm from uh, Tucson, Arizona, and I'm the owner of Sunbright Solar. We're a, a local, um, mostly residential and, and light commercial installer. Um, in our service territory, we have had the utilities uh, essentially crushed net metering. TEP. Yes, um, and so the result of that has caused, a on our installation side, a, a bubble, right? So we're extremely busy. The talent pool is, is now a talent puddle. And, you know, that department is extremely strained. On the other side of that, we're going to have market consolidation, you know, less people going solar, more, you know, companies out there competing for that same thing. So, you know, I'm kind of torn whether do I spend the majority of my time refocusing on the sales aspect side of that thing and and getting our customer acquisition costs down and building a, you know, a larger size of that department so that we can then make it up or do we spend kind of you know some time focusing on that so um you know key pillars of a healthy solar business if you were in my shoes what areas would you recommend focusing on uh you know kind of literally top priority to, you know, once you've conquered some of the major steps, move on down. And I know that's a, a very broad question. That's an awesome question
1: um, in this industry. I think yes. every contractor deals with that. Um, I'd love to hear from Atul if, if you're up for it.
3: So the question was, in, in, an, in a fast-paced, fast-growth business, should you focus on sales first or should you focus on the back-end fulfillment first?
1: Or uh, knowing that there's, there's a bubble that's going to burst because of utility policy changing. Yeah.
3: Oh. I don't know if there's a bubble that's going to burst. I think this industry is here for long. <laughs>
1: well, well, in Tucson specifically, they're oh, okay. installing three or four times no, what Tucson, they normally do. Okay. Um, and and yeah. uh, later this year, they're expecting to be installing a lot less. Right, so how right. do you navigate
3: that? I think that particular market is unique. But, but in general, if I have to make the decision, I, I would still focus on sales first. If you have sustainable sales, you can survive the ups and downs. And uh, if you can keep the salespeople together with the company, I think we can keep the business profitable in the long run. Because with no sales, there's nothing to build around it. So I would say sustainable sales is probably number one priority.
1: Jan, oh, sorry.
4: Yeah, I would I would underline sustainable. Um, and you you have probably a good sense of how you're going to need to get customers in you know six nine 12 month periods from now and uh as as much as i guess you can in a really fast growing niche of the market i would i would try to focus on the the tactics that you think you're going to use and which employees would be most valuable performing those tactics and try to set yourself up for uh success in that in that period you know maybe that means like you're gonna have to get customers a different way and uh, which employees are going to need to know what in order to do the, you know, it's digital lead processing, for instance, I would make sure you have like really good frontline people and you're kind of grooming them for that transition into that role.
2: I um, would recommend an approach that is used in the stock market. So in the stock market, if, if you don't, if you think something's going to happen in a certain period of time, you have the option to buy but not the obligation. So if there is some way that you could think about your business so that you have the option to increase to meet the level of demand, but not the obligation, so that you can let it go if you choose to pass on that opportunity, it's worth spending a little bit more money, like you would do on an option, in order to take advantage of that opportunity if it comes up. So an example might be, maybe you're going to engage dialers. For doing intense cold, you know, cold calling of everyone that's available to do this right now, you're going to focus on getting your installers at and, and your installations working like clockwork, and you're going to hire hire dialers because they're not going to do as good a job and they're not going to do whatever. They're going to be a little bit more expensive, but then in six, you know six months, nine yeah, months. Yeah, I think so.
1: This year, right? It's going to in 2018.
2: It's going to end. Yeah. So, so then you can, you have the option to let them go. I mean, so, so getting something that, that you pay a little bit more for contractors or even dialers, installers, whatever it is, but then you have the option to let it go. So this is how Wall Street manages that kind of risk. And I think it's absolutely applicable to your business. So spend a little bit more money so that you can benefit if the ups, as the upside occurs and then, if the downside occurs, you can get yourself out in a given period of time. Would be my, would be how I would look at it anyway.
1: Is that a helpful concept? Yeah, I'm having trouble translating it. Talk, talk okay. to Jan offline. Yeah, there's a brainstorming <laughs> opportunity there. Did I see a hand in the back? <laughs> yeah, she's she's a good one. Keith.
7: Oh, I'm sorry. Are you going to use the mic or should I sit down we all right. use okay. my question is um, basically about the utilities. We all know that NEM went through one through two it 's going to go to three we know there's going to be the net metering is going to go away or it 's not going to be net metering anymore The small net, municipals already have uh, no net metering they give you retail not retail wholesale um, so that effect um, and the biggest thing that i 'm seeing is there is a finite amount of solar that can go on the transformer side of PG&E. It is impacted tremendously on the commercial side. It is coming in the residential side. It is here, it's not going away. We already know that from other markets like Hawaii and other places. So my question is, not that the customers, but the low hanging, easy customers installation to turnkey to starting to producing power while they have a bill and we haven't got permission to operate. So what are we doing in the industry to avoid that bottleneck that we all see as coming down the road, to stop that slowness of the process? So Like you said, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, but that's coming. And it's really hard to see the other side. We're pretty good at doing our side. We've gotten, come a long way. But now I have jobs sitting there six months a year, and PG with utilities not moving forward. Yeah, so, what are we doing? <laughs>
2: You know about the initiative that has actually got started here, right? That they're trying to go to the Euro- European model, where you would get licensed and approved as an installer, and then you get ch- just a, similar to how our taxes work, right? So, so you're a taxpayer, and you're expected to be honest because 2% of the time someone's going to come in and check your taxes, and you get your random auditing that occurs for your taxes. So the vast majority of the population is considered honest until audited and proven otherwise. And so the European model, once you're certified as an installer and and presumed to be competent at what it is you're doing, then they will do random audits of where you're at 2% of the time, so much less overhead, and then you'll be competent until proven otherwise. And if you do fail one of those audits, the consequences are severe from what I'm reading. so that has been proposed, actually, and announced here um, as the direction that the solar industry would like to go. I think it's a it works well in Europe, it saves a dollar per watt. It is for permits, it's not for interoperability, that's right. So the only solution I know about that is Power clerk, and that's not everywhere but
3: I think his question is more transformer capabilities. We, we have seen in certain residential areas in PG&E, where PG&E has to come in and do a transformer upgrade to facilitate more residential customers for solar. It, yeah, so that's, that's definitely uh, an industry, I would say obstacle. I don't think it's the end of the game, but it's obstacle. Uh, and PG&E is is uh, required to upgrade the transform because they still have to service the customers. So by the Utilities Commission mandate, I think they're required to upgrade the, the transform. At least in our experience, they did that. Uh, I know I'm not sure if there's any initiative from from solar industry to have some kind of dialogue with utilities, but I, maybe in, in the coming years, it probably needs to be. So it's a good point. I, I don't think if we have reached that stage where it's Big problem everywhere. It may be problems in certain pockets. Uh, and, and as as the, the, your other question was net metering, as the net metering changes or closes, this industry will evolve. There'll be new products come in. Storage is already a, a viable option today, which is going to replace some of the net metering. You will see some more evolutionary f- financial products come through to replace the PPA, which will you know, kind of take advantage of not having that metric in place. So, industry will evolve, right? Just like mortgage, I always look at it as a mortgage industry. Depending upon the economy and the segment of the population, you always see new products. So, we will see similar products come out as the industry changes. Yeah, it, it there definitely is an issue in certain pockets. Especially in PG&E, older uh, infrastructure.
1: I would suggest this is a great opportunity to talk to some SIA folks who are here and yeah. and uh, see how they're addressing that. That that that's the ideal place for that kind of question to be answered. Um, at least off the top of my head, yeah.
2: So there are, there are several fact, oh there are several factors that affect you your the question? so the the question is about that they've got a multi-pronged online lead generation program and it uses Google AdWords, Facebook ads and other advertising that are feeding into the same fu- funnel and it's 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 working but it had like a nine, 6 to 9 month lead time before it actually got effective and I would like to tell you that you can probably continue to expect that a lot of the Google algorithms are based on a certain amount of longevity it 's one of the screens that they use that you 're not spam so a lot of your search results and your credibility comes from consistency. The other thing is that the the Facebook ads are now finally getting hooked into google they 're starting to talk to each other, which is Got some interesting privacy issues, but it's good in general for our context here. And it, and it's so starting to, to have those feedback loops, but those are relatively new. So having a six to nine month lead time on an online effort is actually to be expected. It's, it's like a Google testing period to make sure that you're a company that's not fly by night. So, so that will continue to be the case, I think, for a while.
4: Yeah, I, I'd say that that's even like a very, very short testing period to see a lot of success. If you if you take, I used to run an SEO agency um, down in San Diego. And we would usually need to work on a site before getting real traction for a year, year and a half. And you can see site. Yeah, it, if you if you look at some of the sites that have the best search rank, like we own this site called Solar Power Rocks that we bought this year. And it's it's been around for 10 years. It has an extremely deep base of content. And it, it took that time period. Actually, it just started really ticking up in traffic in the past three to four years, partially because more consumers are searching for these terms, but then also because it took Google a lot of time to value that content. That's not saying you know for your, your solar business that's focused in a specific geography, it, you, know, you need to wait through that 10-year period. Like Think ahead and realize that customers are going to be shopping that way in 2021, 2022. And if you, you know, care about your business being a, a major presence in your market, uh, that means investing in educational content. You know, it's, it, it's hard to justify, especially SEO investments, because you're just spending, spending, spending each month. And you don't get the return in the first six months, nine months, year. You, you need to keep investing in it. But um, think about what would be really useful to a consumer that's searching for a phrase for you to have the best page on the internet about that particular topic. And uh, it can be something you know very specific to your market that has your utility and you think you have a unique perspective on. Educational content's really key. And then you talked a little bit about digital marketing and how the investment is paying off after a six to nine month uh, period of investment it it does take time and budget and this goes for third party lead generators too to develop a close relationship and tweak your campaigns with your lead generation companies as well as stuff that you're doing internally you know taking and spreading like a thousand dollars across ten different tactics is rarely going to be as effective as really vetting the two tactics or two lead gen companies you want to work with and then placing real investments and developing partnerships with them so you know they give you the best of of what they can or if you're using a marketing agency, you know, they they give you kind of the, the best that they can within their strategies.
8: Awesome. Thank you. Kinda nervous. My question is more in education. I'm a teacher. I was teaching solar and construction, mainly more construction. I got into solar maybe about five years ago and we started doing side jobs with my students. It wasn't good for, anyway, we were doing okay, but we never had a job placement. My focus is more on on the installers, even though I was teaching them a little bit about sizing and drawing plans and stuff like that, showing them the whole business, how much materials cost and everything, but my focus is more on installers. But, watching these shows i've been to three shows it almost seems like i should just can that and kind of do my own business in a way but because teaching is i don't see a lot of teaching going on especially for installers because there's a big demand in installers that i'm seeing i can hire installers from a company and say hey you know i'll pay you 300 bucks for the day and give me four guys and they'll do it so it's like the loyalty is really not there i just Don't know which way to shift, you know, because I do construction, general contractor, so I can go either route, but my passion is really teaching, and words of wisdom, you tell me what... I don't want to say what I should do, but I can go different directions. It it almost seems like solar has a little problem here and there, like the gentleman was saying. uh, uh, You know, permits, it almost seems like we're educating uh, Inspectors in the same time, you know. Some people don't know what they want. You go to certain counties or certain cities and that kind of stuff. And I don't know. It seems like there's still problems that maybe I should just let the problem solve and then come back later because I do love solar, you know. So
1: this is a life coaching opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: sorry. Where is your business based? Where is your school based? Well,
8: I was. I'm. I've been. I live in Temecula, but I'm based in the Hemet. The you know section, and that's where I was teaching high school for six years, and teaching dropouts. I, I, I was teaching all kinds of students, Perfect. so it's like, but it was more hands-on, and it's like, I found only three nonprofits here, two that I've kind of related with, especially Great Alternative. You know, I've worked with them a lot. I've worked with Habitat. I mean, pretty much in the teaching, I, I've kind of bounced around everywhere, so I got a good general background as far as the problems in teaching. You know, they want to teach out of a book. That works only for so much, you know, and it's like, I mean, you got a class in Colorado for $1,500 and they're really not teaching more of the hands on, even though they are. But it's like, I, I really do think that a person, you know, talking to salespeople, I mean, I could wiggle them down from $6 a watt all the way down to three twenty-five a watt when I start naming out, you know, products and what they cost and stuff like that. So it's like, there, there seems to be no communication or no loyalty in certain departments and stuff like that so it's like, I, I don't know what the situation is, but it's like, yeah it can kind of go one way or go the other way but like I said, I do love teaching I love solar, but flipping houses is almost easier than doing that, but I Nobody mean, said it was going to be easy <laughs> <laughs> But uh, words of wisdom from, I
1: guess, the panel, you know I mean from, from a, a from a what do you want to do with your life point of view, um, I, I, I would keep looking at what are you passionate about and um, yeah, there, there will be a way, I, I, I would think. Um, but yeah, it's not gonna be easy. <laughs> um, in terms of the disconnects you're talking about in the industry, I don't know specifically what you're referring to, but this is still a very immature industry and there are a lot of connections that have yet to be reinforced in sustainable ways. So I think there's a lot of education happening. A lot of it's in California, but, but a lot of it's also in inner cities in the Northeast, in Philadelphia and in New York. And I've talked to people who are doing some incredible work. I think NABCEP does great work um, in, in its own channel. Um, and the connections between the education part of the industry and the construction and sales part of the industry have yet to be built, um, I know IBEW is doing education in California also for for union electricians, so it 's fragmented and and I think building the bridges is the phase that we 're in um, as opposed to expecting that to already have been achieved uh, that 's my response to your question i don 't know if that hits the mark at all. Any other thoughts um, I think the nappF sales
4: certification is is a pretty interesting concept you know. This is stuff that probably needs to be led by the company, giving some incentive for the employee to uh, attend the training, or you know even requiring employees to go through the training. But I, I like I like the concept of that certification that they've they've launched, and, and think it,
1: you it's, know, it's a bit. had a lot of success too. Yeah.
2: I just have one comment, which is that they have um, there are a lot of government grants around job retraining. And so you might want to look into programs that will retrain people, because there's actually funds there available for that kind of work.
1: Well, I think we're about at our time limit. Um, Colin, Atul, and Jan, you guys did an awesome job. I want to thank you. You shared so much insight. And if we could give these guys a round of applause. And thank you all for hanging out with
3: us. Thank Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's it for the Solar Review podcast. If you have follow up questions from this panel discussion or a question for Boaz specifically, feel free to leave a comment in this post on Solar Review and we'll get back to you. Just Google Baywa and Distribution, that's B A Y W A and Distribution, and you'll find the magazine. Okay, thanks for listening and see you next time.